Well, hey, age 12. How's it going? <laughs> uh, so, guys, my name is Travis, and I'm one of the, the pastors here on staff with H12. And um, it, is a, it is an awesome privilege to be with you guys tonight as we jump into the second week of this Faith Works series. And talking about tonight is, is, is a really cool idea, but also kind of a really, a really hard thing for a lot of us um, in, the, in the high school age to really, uh, to really process through and make sense of. But, you know, watching the uh, NBA Finals, anybody watch Warriors take it last night? Yeah? Oh, man, a lot of LeBron, a lot of... It's okay. It's, so, a, a big topic that happens in the conversation of sports um, and something that you really don't ever really think about in high school is the idea of a legacy, you know, when you're in the middle of high school, when you're young, I remember being y'all's age, when you're so looking forward to all the things that your life has yet to become, the idea of legacy, the idea of how you'll be remembered, none of that, that's not really a big part of your thought process. That's not something that you really spend to take, uh, you really spend a lot of time thinking about. And so, you know, I, I grew up playing sports and a really cool thing when I, when I was growing up is that my dad always seemed to be my coach. Like he used to coach me in football, he used to coach me in baseball, and it's funny because the idea of legacy is something that it's totally sports heavy. If you turn on ESPN at any time, you're gonna get insert random talking head talking about is MJ LeBron, who's better? Uh, is this KD's team or does Steph still run it? Who's, who's greater? What, is their, what have they accomplished? All of these things, and that seems to be 23 and a half hours of ESPN's programmings with the other 30 minutes being to commercials or something. But, but that's the big idea in sports is that legacy is a huge thing. And I remember like thinking about uh, when I was playing sports that my dad always used to, you know, he was wanting to shape who I would be remembered as. He, would wanted, he was wanting to shape who I was as an athlete. And he always had two things as a coach uh, to his player, kind of as a dad to his son, uh, two things that he always used to tell me. Number one, he used to always say that if you want to be great, you have to outwork everyone else. And if you've played sports, you've probably heard some amalgamation of that, some you know, uh, uh, putting of those words together. And the other thing that he said all the time, he said, you're not a quitter. So if you commit to something, you've got to see it through. He used to say that all the time to me. Anybody, you guys have coaches that tell you all the time, you're not a quitter. Whether it's the end of the play, or whether it's the end of the season, or the end of practice, you're not a quitter. And so thinking about legacy and thinking about sports, it brought like a couple, it's funny because it, it, sometimes legacy and thinking about how people are remembered brings people specifically to the front of your mind, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, whatever. But the first one um, was a professional football player by the name of Ricky Williams. You guys know Ricky Williams? He probably played before you remember football, but I'm a huge Miami Dolphins fan. Uh, uh, and, and Ricky Williams uh, you know, was a Heisman Trophy winner for the University of Texas. He was drafted number five overall. He was a stud. He spent most of his time in the NFL with the Dolphins. The funny thing is like the New Orleans Saints drafted him and they traded like eight draft picks to pick this guy because this guy was supposed to be a savior of a football team. And so what was really cool is, is watching him play, uh, it, it, it immediately made me a fan because of how hard he played. But the thing that he's remembered for is that in 2004, 
like a few days before camp, a few days before the season is beginning and teams are coming together, they've spent their whole off season away, a few days before, he quit. He retired, like a week before the new season was supposed to start. And I get it, like, you know, football's a violent sport and we know more about it now than we knew when he played, but he quit on his team and he retired. And it's not like he retired because his body was beaten up. He retired because he wanted to go find himself um, by, well, he was, he, was a, he was a proponent of, at the time, illegal marijuana, which now a lot of places it's legal, which is hooray for Ricky. But <laughs> then, then it was, you know, not only could you not have it in football, you could not have it uh, legally in any state. And so Ricky quit it's funny because Ricky had already failed a few substance uh, tests. He was already going to be suspended for the first four games of the upcoming season. And rather than face his consequences, he quit on his team, he quit on his fans, he quit on his friends and family, and he walked away from football. And so he would eventually try and journey back, but he would miss years because he chose something over this, and that's what he's remembered for. As good as he was, all the things that he did, Ricky's remembered a certain way. And then there's another guy that uh, really has a cool story. His name's Jim Abbott. And if you don't know who Ricky Williams is, you absolutely do not know who Jim Abbott is. Because Jim Abbott was a baseball player. He was drafted. Uh, here's the cool things about Jim Abbott. If you look at that picture, that is not a Photoshop picture. He was a pitcher with one hand, and he pitched in the major leagues. He was a 1988 U.S. gold medalist in the Olympics with the U.S. baseball team. He was drafted in the first round of the 1988 draft. Like, think about that. There are some pitchers with two hands that are terrible, and this guy did it with one. And so what's cool about Jim Abbott is that, is that he was a, a pitcher. He was a guy with one hand. He, was even, he would even bat at sometimes when he would play in the National League, uh, but most notably, he's remembered for something that he did in 1993. So let's watch it. So the guy with one hand pitched a no-hitter. That's incredible. Uh, Jim Abbott's got a super incredible story. Uh, he, he, he overcame a feat, or he overcame a disability that for some people would have sidelined them and said, you know what, it's not even worth trying. Like, I'm a one-handed person why would I want to play baseball? If you see how he did it, it was really cool. He would put his hand, he would put his glove, he was left-handed, he would put it like this on his other hand, he would throw left-handed and slip it back on his hand, and then he would catch the ball, and if he caught the ball, he would throw it underhand, overhand, right out of his mitt. Like, I don't have enough coordination to do that with two hands, but he could do that with one hand. And so the, what's amazing is he's, he's quoted as saying something that I think is really just kind of, it's kind of amazing to take this point of view when it seems like you're given all of the opportunity to not accomplish something. But he, he's quoted as saying this, it's not the disability that defines you, it's how you deal with the challenges that the disability presents you with. So you look at how incredibly different these two stories are. Ricky Williams, great player, had all the talent in the world, but what is his legacy? He has a legacy of quitting. And Jim Abbott, who had every reason to not be good, every reason to not go for it, every reason to say, I could probably do something else being a one-handed pitcher. But he chose to overcome those obstacles 
and he proved everybody wrong. He inspired thousands. So my question for you tonight is, as we kind of jump in is that which story would you think you would want to have told about you one day? Would you want to be someone that gave up when it seemed like things were just a little too hard? Or would you want to be a person who looked obstacles in the face and says, I must persevere. I'm going to get through this. It seems like everything's in front of me and saying, don't do it, but I think I want to try. And so tonight I believe this, and if you're taking notes, this is kind of the big thought for tonight, that God wants to turn your trial into your testimony. So when I was, a, when I was in high school, my teenage years, they were terrible. Um, I remember when, uh, you know, when I was in high school, my family started falling apart and my parents, you know, my parents' relationship was breaking down and um, them, them kind of tr- wanting to keep it quiet, but my parents were the worst at trying to do that and trying to hide it from me and my sister that things weren't okay. And so what was really hard about it is that, you know, my home, the place where I felt most comfortable was a place that I was never comfortable I would go home every day and I would hate being there. I'd go home every day and I, and, I, and I hated what I was going home to. I hated when I would wake up early and I would see my, my mom sleeping on the couch because she didn't want to share the same room with my dad for months. And so it's amazing that when I, when I started working in the church, when I went into ministry, it's really, it's really, I don't think it's by accident that God put me in ministry during the most divorced time in the history of the world. That my story of my parents' relationship breaking down and everything that would kind of domino through that and the things that I would struggle with because of that. Like God, God called me into ministry because other people's story is just like mine. And so he would take what, what the, the trial that I had to work through and the trial that, that I at sometimes would feel lost in, and he would use that to something for his good. He would use that to something that would, that would inspire others. He would use that in something that would bring peace and help to other people who have similar stories like mine. And now God didn't cause my parents to divorce. He didn't cause that, but he'd get, he did get me through it so that my story and experience could help those who are going through it as well. And so I believe it's totally true that God wanted to turn what was a test for me, what was trials for me, into something that I could use for his kingdom and for his good. He he, he knew that when I would see breakthrough, he knew that I would see breakthrough in my life when I persevered through hard times. And so John Maxwell, who um, you guys probably have heard that name before. If not, there's a giant building uh, dedicated to him over at the Sugarloaf campus. But John Maxwell's got a really cool quote. And he says that everything worthwhile in life is uphill. And so all that's meaning is that it's a way of saying that you get a level of enjoyment from your accomplishments when you have to work for it. And it's hard to accomplish it. And so that's why I believe that, that nobody... And this is a hot take, I get it, but nobody's really going to give KD all of the, the, the accolades that he deserves because he didn't have to work really hard for the ring that he got last night. He walked to the greatest team to ever play basketball, and now he got a ring. No, just a lot of LeBron fans, I get it. So that's my thought about basketball. KD coasted. He's not a real champion. You can talk to me later in the hall. We'll debate it. I'll call Skip Bayless. 
So that's, that's not a good story. If you didn't have to work for something, if it seems like it's too easy, there's, there's no emotion in it. It's not hard. If you are the one that wins, then absolutely, you want to work you want it to be easy when you do something, but it's not a great story. There, was, there is more in your accomplishment when you have to work for it, when you have to strive for do something, when you have to overcome an obstacle. It makes it more worthwhile. But the big idea in all of this, as it comes to us, as it comes to our faith and our belief in Jesus Christ, is that, is that perseverance is a huge component of our faith. So I want you to go ahead. We're going to jump into the Bible um, go ahead and get your Bibles out. They're under your seat. If you don't have one, um, you have got one on your phone. And I know that you may not have a Bible, but you do have a phone. Uh, so if you're in the Bible, turn to James 1, verse 2 through 4. That's on page 1216 in your Cafe Theater H12 Bibles. Page 1216, James 1. It says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lack and not lacking anything. So the Bible in James, it's telling us to persevere. It even says to let perseverance do its work. That means just allow it, like let it work. Accept that perseverance is going to be a part of your story, that you're going to have to stick with it. What it whatever it is that God is trying to bring you through in this season that you're in, that you may have to fight through it. That's a, that's a common thing for a lot of us. Whatever it is, you know, perseverance is hanging in there, is staying in there, and perseverance is powerful. The Bible says in Proverbs 24, 16, it says, for though uh, the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. So you notice that it doesn't say that the righteous don't fall. It doesn't say that just because you know Jesus, just because you have given your life to him, that you're not going to fall. It's not going to say that things aren't going to be hard. But it says, even though that the righteous may fall seven times, a hundred times, a thousand times, they get back up. So those who are righteous has, have perseverance. They don't quit. They keep getting up. They keep moving forward. They keep following Jesus. And there's a really cool story of a guy that we all, we've probably heard, we've read his works before. Um, we've read what he's written. And a great example of perseverance in the Bible was Paul. So no person, what's cool about Paul is that no person apart from Jesus himself has shaped the history of Christianity because Paul has such a footprint in the New Testament. Paul did so much taking something, taking the, the Bible, taking the gospel of Jesus, taking Jesus' story to people who had never heard it before. He took the gospel to all the non-Jews, over to the Gentiles, that, that, that God's story wasn't going to stay. Jesus' gospel, him, him dying for our sins and rising again to be the ultimate sacrifice for us, that wasn't something that was going to stay just in a pocket that was something that Paul was going to take out to all people. And so Paul, in his life, set out on three missionary journeys that he would carry the gospel across the Roman Empire. And he wrote 13 books of the Bible, which is really cool. If you're reading the New Testament, you, you've got a pretty good chance of reading a book that Paul wrote. And we wouldn't have any, any of that if it wasn't preserved. And so what's really cool is that in this, in his writing, 
he's very truthful of writing what he's dealing with. That you can imagine that taking the story of Jesus to a world where that was not understood was probably not the safest thing that you could do. And so in 2 Corinthians, as Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he, he, he says this, these are the things that are happening to him as he is trying to take the gospel out, to take the message of Jesus, to spread it so that people know who Jesus is and what he's done. And so in 2 Corinthians 4, it says this, it says, he says, we are hard pressed on every side, not, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. And so this is a man who is being hunted. This is a man who is constantly being threatened his life for the things that he is saying because the story of Jesus was so provocative at that time that it went against everyone. It stood against the stories and the religions of everyone else in the world. And so Paul taking this out to people was something that was not for his, not, not, not the best for his health. It was something that was very dangerous. And he, he even goes on to write this later in 2 Corinthians. He says, I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one across his back with a whip. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea, and I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. So Paul was in danger. Everywhere he was, what he was taking to people was so, was so destructive of their way of life. It was so different. It, it took everything that they had believed in and it crumbled it because their beliefs were not fixed in this one thing. There, there was a man who was God and he died so that they could have life. That if you tell this to someone who firmly believes something different, I can imagine that they're not gonna accept it well. It's like trying to go onto Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and start a political comment and start a conversation, you know, one that's just gonna be really cordial and nice and everyone's gonna agree with your opinion. That's never gonna happen. Try it. You're gonna get spammed all day long with people calling you every word that they could ever think of. And so Paul, who's got this, his, his life being threatened everywhere he goes, Man, the word that describes him the most is perseverance. It's crazy to think of the level of perseverance that he had, that, that everywhere he would go, he would be fearing for his life, yet he knew that his charge, that his mission was to take the gospel to let people know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus has done for them. 
It's amazing that he did it and he didn't give up when it seemed impossible. Instead, he allowed God to use his pain to minister to others. He, let, he, he said that I will suffer for the sake of God because I know that God will redeem this, that God will use this, that my story is not gonna stop with me being in prison, with me being flogged, with me being chased, with me being in danger. That's not where this ends. And he never quit. As a matter of fact, the, what's amazing about Paul is that one time he was exiled on an island to die. He was in prison for telling others about Jesus. And this is what took place. This is in the book of Revelation. This is him writing. He says, I, John, uh, I, John your brother um, and companion, in the suffering and kingdom of, of patient endurance that is ours in Jesus, uh, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. So in the midst of being imprisoned, in the midst of seeing his life wasted away, God gives him vision. God gives him hope. God gives him a future. God says, this is for the church write this down, send this out because I'm going to show you something that even though you are in what seems like a desperate and, and despair-laden place, I have a plan that's bigger than the thing that you're in right now. And so what we do during our adversity, what we do when we're in the midst of a storm, what we do when it things like things aren't working and that things are crumbling around us, that says a lot about who we are. That says a lot, a lot about what our belief is. And so, but I mean, honestly, if, if we're gonna have an honest conversation, that's way easier to say than actually do. It's way easier to say that when, when, the, when life gives you a storm, when things are messy and it looks like things are going to just be desolate and terrible around you, trust in Jesus. And you smile and you go your merry way. That's hard, it might be the church answer. It might be the right answer, but it's hard. And so when my, you know, in my story, when my parents were breaking apart, I carried a lot of that pain myself. Um, a, lot, a lot of confusion. It ultimately, like, you know, it ultimately led to me feeling despair all the time. And if you don't know what despair is, despair is like the total absence of, of, of hope. And so as my parents... As, as, as my family was breaking down, it caused a domino effect that led to a lot of things in my life breaking down. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to see people. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to go places. I skipped school all the time. I tried to make up excuses um, for exp explaining why I was somewhere when I really wasn't. I ran away from home I don't know how many times. Like, I... I couldn't be there. And so when I was 17, uh, I was diagnosed with clinical depression. I was put on medication. I was put uh, in offices with doctors who were supposed to have me feel my feelings and know what's really at the center of my pain. And the hardest part about all of this, that, that everything seemed like it was breaking down, the hardest part about it, it, it was that I grew up in the church and I knew, I knew that the correct answer was that I need to keep my faith. 
and I need to stay in Jesus, and I need to pray, and I need to seek after him, but if I can be 100% honest, I've never felt more alone from God than I did in that season. Man, it hurt. Like, I could pray every day. I could seek after a pastor. I could try and talk to the right people. But in my heart, like, there was so much junk in me. There was so much, I, I, I felt lost everywhere that I was. That it didn't matter. It was easier just to stay alone. It was easier just to soak it up and just, just exist than it was to actually try and confront it. It was the hardest season that I ever have experienced and I had no power to fix it. Like I can't, I couldn't fill this hole that just kept feeling like it was getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And whatever glimmer of hope there was in my life, in, in high school, in this place where I was so hurt, it felt, it felt like it was just gonna be easier just to not be in the fight at all. But there's, what's, what's really amazing about, about this story and, and, and about the story of James, which is where all of this is taken through during this series, uh, during Faith Works, is that there's a hopeful truth in the book of James. And when we don't give up, God gives us something that's on the other side. And so James 1 says this, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So however dark the night, however dim your hope, that the light will always follow darkness. That's what we wanna know. That's the hope that we cling to. That's, that's the faith that we try and persevere in is that, that no matter how deep our trouble, that there is hope that, it, that, that God's mercy is new again in the morning. But I know that this is true tonight. I know that this is true for many of you guys in this room. That, that, you, that you, you are sitting here and you're thinking, man, I've got this level of pain. I've got this stuff in my life that, that you could say all of these things and it, wouldn't, it doesn't equate. You don't understand what I'm dealing with. And that's true, I don't. I don't understand where you're at. And for a lot of you guys, you may be like, life is easy, it's the summer. There's no school, like, it's, it's easy. I, I'm, just, I'm just getting by, but there are your friends, there are the ones that you love in this room that are broken. That every time they go home, it's a place where they're scared. That every time they're around a certain person or they're in a certain situation, it feels like there is no hope. And so the only thing that I can offer you is that you are not alone. That no matter the, the level of despair that you're in, that no matter the, the, the hopelessness, no matter the situation, that you're not too far gone. And, and I don't necessarily know how to fix it. And, and I'm sure that you may sit and say, I don't know how to fix the things that I've done. I don't know how to, to mend the people that I've hurt. I don't know how to bring back the things that I had when it was good and now it's broken and I don't know how to get there. And everything feels like it's too broken to fix. I mean, I, I, I want you to know that 
God has not forgotten you. And that God's not letting you fight this alone. So in my story, I realized that all of these things that I had going on were going to, they ultimately led to a choice that I had. And when I was 17 years old, I realized that it was just, it was easier to fix my pain by ending it. That's just the easier thing for me. I didn't know how to make it better. I didn't know what to do. And so one night when my mom, she, was, she wasn't at home and my dad, uh, my dad was upstairs watching TV and, you know, my room was downstairs and I, uh, I, I, I walked downstairs and at this time I was already on medication. Um, I was, like I said, I was seeing... I was seeing doctor after doctor who wanted to talk to me, who wanted to help me fix things. And so this one night that I said, this is just, this is how it's gotta be. And so I walked downstairs and, and, and my dad had a, a really uh, great gun collection. And so I just felt that like it's easier to fix my pain by getting rid of my pain. And so I pulled out one of my dad's pistols and I loaded it and I sat on the stairs in my basement. And I was hurt. I didn't know what to do. There wasn't anything that I could do. I don't have the power to fix me. And so I, I sat there and I just sat and I took a deep breath. I had this loaded pistol in my hand. And as clear as I ever, ever heard anybody say anything, I heard behind me, you're not a quitter. So I turn around, I'm thinking, my dad has caught me. My dad's come down the stairs and he's seen me, but my dad's not there. <laughs> I've never experienced anything like that. God had not forgotten me. God found me in the midst of my despair. He found me when I was in a pit. He found me when everything was broken and I couldn't fix it. And I'll, I'm not going to lie and say that everything was sunshine and rainbows right after that. It was years and years of seeking after him and years and years of walking through the pain and facing it head on and seeking after him, knowing that there is something better. And here's what I know tonight, and I know that there are some of you in this room that feel that level of despair. Your actions may not be as drastic as mine. But I know that in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of a place where I felt like I couldn't go on, that the faithfulness of God showed up that he would slowly lift the fog off of my life, that he would slowly 
open my eyes to see his goodness, that he would call me into something bigger, and that he would use my story to reach people who are feeling the same thing. And so if you're sitting in this room, that is the exact same thing that he is doing in you tonight. That whether you've experienced something in your past that has shaped the person that you are right now in high school, or whether the, the next season that you're going to experience, maybe in college, maybe becoming a senior, the expectations that are being put on your shoulders, all of these things are coming together and they're making life really hard. And guess what? God has not forgotten you. So I don't know what you're going through. I don't know the trials that you're dealing with. But I do know that my trial, that my tests, that what God has put me through, that he has faithfully brought me through to the other side. And he has made that my testimony. He has made that my story. And he's, he's uniquely made me here so that I can talk to someone who deals with the same thing that I deal with. So there's no, there's no explanation as to why why God would put us through a trial. I think it's far beyond our comprehension. It's something that, that the more you know him, the more you know that he loves you, the more you know his personality, the more you know that he has a plan. And so in the middle of your mess, in the middle of what you've done, in the middle of what's been done to you. That your perseverance, your fight, this is not a room full of quitters. That your fight, your faith, you're staying steadfast through this. That's what matters. And I believe that he rewards that. Because your trial is not just for you to feel pain. Your trial is not for you just to, to, to lose hope. But your trial is to become your story. Your story is to show others that hope is not lost. <laughs>